Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Blue Ngo, coming to your ears from NARM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's learn together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast. I am your host, Lu Ngo, coming to your ears from NARM, Melbourne, Australia. And today I am joined by Jari Rose. Jari Rose, M-A-L-M-F-T, is a licensed marriage and family therapist, mindfulness and meditation teacher, coach, author, speaker, and she also leads mindfulness retreats around the world. Jari has helped thousands of people to live happier and more fulfilling lives through living with greater awareness and compassion, allowing them to decrease their stress, anxiety, and shed unhealthy habits, patterns, and mindsets. Jory is host of the podcast Journey Forward with Jory Rose and has authored the newly released A Year of Gratitude, Daily Moments of Reflection, Grace and Thanks, as well as two mindfulness books, Scrummy Learns to Be Mindful and Mindfulness is Elementary. Jory has been featured in prominent media outlets such as OprahMac.com, NBCNews.com, Business Insider, KTLA News, and so many more. And today's topic is mindfulness, and we're going to explore it um, from the angle of the science behind mindfulness and the impact it has <coughs> in our lives. So let's get started. Jory, thank, thank, so thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I read your bio and I just had, you know, this, these goosebumps and I'm just so, so glad that we finally made it happen. Um, for context, you're based in the US and we are here in Melbourne. So, you know, the time difference is quite big. Um, and, and like yes. we, you know, we always joke on this show, we'll come from the future. And uh, uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> you're, you, you're back to the future for you. I'm, yeah. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California. Yeah, there we go. So, you know, it's just uh, really fun to make this happen. And we are so glad that we are here today to talk about mindfulness with you such a perfect person to talk about this topic. So when we start the show, uh, for me personally, I really love to throw it over to the guest to introduce you a bit more. Oh, we hear your, oh. <laughs> we hear your puppy in the background. My, my, my dog Buddha wanted to be part of the introduction. He's like, hello, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, what is, which is very lovely. You know, it's kind of like, uh, I, I like the personal touch, uh, especially with the Yes, pet you know what? We, we are in a human world and this is our lives. So. Yeah. Which is, you know, really nice. You know, we're human. And it's actually a great opportunity to be mindful in the moment to say, okay, this is happening. How do I want to respond to it? Yeah. This is the reality of our life. So yeah. mindfulness practice in real time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really love that. Should I? Let me go get him to stop. One second. Yeah. We'll be back. This is a new experience for me, Lou. I normally have both my kids home, so yeah. someone else can monitor the dog. 
But my oldest daughter just left for college and my younger daughter just left for a semester abroad. Oh, so I'm now an empty nester. Oh, wow. And so like this is, you know, okay. so I'm the only one here. No one else can make sure he stays quiet. So I apologize. But I got his leash on, which will be easier for him to so we can start that over so we don't have his interruption. So, yeah, whatever Uh, you want to pick up. All right. So um, absolutely, we're testing how mindful we can be in in this situation where we have a little bit of disruptions, as we always do. And um, it is a perfect segue into asking you this question, Jory. Can you let us know a little more about yourself? We got a peek into your life. You've got a very cute puppy. What else should we know about you? I have a very cute puppy who looks like a teddy bear and his name is Buddha. I am a mother who is in the midst of transition. Uh, I got divorced about eight years ago, and my oldest daughter just started college. Yesterday was her first day of classes, and she is in the Midwest. And my younger daughter, who's 16, just left. Both my girls left within the same week, and my 16-year-old is all the way in Israel on a semester abroad uh, doing her high school junior fall semester uh, in Israel. So, you know, everything that I teach, I practice daily, right? So all of my mindfulness practice is what gets me through the, the good moments to harness, right, the gratitude and the awareness to recognize what's arising and how to stay present. But my mindfulness practice has also gotten me through the hardest moments, And I will share so many different examples of, you know, what that looks like and how it gets put into practice. And yeah, I had, like I said, you said in the introduction, I'm a marriage and family therapist and I have a virtual practice and work mainly with adult women who are working to transition their lives into living a little more authentically. Right. We get so stuck in habits and patterns or even relationships or situations and these old narratives and these old ways of being just get in the way of us being fully present and authentic. And so mindfulness is for me the best path to help people live the most fulfilling life possible because life is hard. Things that we don't want to have happen, happen, right? We all, as a universal humanity, just have been going through, still going through COVID. I mentioned I just had it a couple weeks ago, still getting over it. I apologize if I cough, right? Mm, But to have a set of tools to fall back on, to me, I don't know any other way to go through life. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing all of the details about your life and uh, especially, you know, getting COVID recently as well. We're all going through this still. It has not come to an end and please, you don't have to apologize. We're just so glad that you made the time to be here. Oh, I'm so grateful for it to be able to share because I I honestly, I am so passionate about these tools. I wouldn't be here doing what I do if I didn't, like I said, practice them daily Mm. and feel that this is how we can live our best lives. Because mm. like I said, life is hard. Yeah. And we all need greater skills and tools to get through it because a lot of patterns are not always so healthy. Yeah. And the hardest patterns to break are the ones that are spinning mind where mm. we get stuck. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I just, I, you, 
I'm just excited to share with you today because there's so much that I know that your audience can benefit from our conversation. Yeah, I love that. And with that, let's get started. The first section that we have is called Have You Met Jory? So I would love to ask you for some recommendations. This is my favorite part. As we get to know the guest a bit better, um, our audience will warm to you instantly once they know about what you like, what's on your list. The first thing we always ask is what is your favorite book or which book would you recommend? There are so many, I can't recommend just one, but I do have to recommend the one that was the most transformational for me. And it's the same author, but there's two books. So I'm going to kind of cheat and give two answers, but it's the same author. And the author's name is Dan Millman. And he wrote the book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior back in the 80s. And although that's the book that he's most well known for, my favorite book of his is called, um, now my mind just blinked on the name. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it is, it's going to come to me in a second. Yeah. Okay. Ah, I can see the book. Okay. But Dan Millman is so spiritual and universal in his teachings. Mm-hmm. And he writes in a fantastical way that makes you believe it's all really happening. Yeah. And yet it's all metaphor for life. And my mind has still blinked on the name, maybe a little COVID brain. It'll come back to me. Yeah. It'll come throughout back. the conversation. Yeah. It's going to come back. Yeah. And that, that, that's my favorite book. It's the one that I can't think of the name <laughs> of. How silly is that? Yeah. It's okay. Uh, sometimes you like something a lot, but the, the name just kind of blank on you. It's, it happened to me so many times. Okay. Here we go. It just came to me. Oh, see, I told you it would come right to me. Yeah. It's called the laws of spirit. Okay. The laws of spirit is he he takes us on a journey that as as if you your highest self or your most spiritual self or your future self meets you on a mountain top mountaintop and takes you on a journey, what lessons would you learn? Yeah. And so the, the laws of spirit is for me the most simple and precise and accurate and beautiful description of how to walk through our life. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Sounds like these books are very spiritual and um, they've been around for quite a while. I haven't heard about this author before. So thanks for the recommendation. Yes. And I've actually been on retreat with him three separate times. Wow. And my first retreat with him was single-handedly my most life-defining moment. So he's not just uh, my favorite author. He's actually my favorite spiritual teacher. Mm. Wow. Now I'm very curious, uh, you know, after this podcast, I'm going to have to, you know, frantically Google and research and you know, yeah. find out more about that. Um, all right. So we've talked about book. Now let's talk about movie. What would, which, which movie would you recommend or, you know, what's your all time favorite? Crazy Stupid Love. Oh, I love that movie. Oh my God. It's so fun to watch. I love that movie and it really speaks to me because I was married to my high school sweetheart mm. and I got divorced about eight years ago. And that movie so beautifully depicts the challenge of, of marriage and how we might grow mm. together or grow apart over time. Yeah. And that you can love someone and so may not have, it may not be the right person to be with. Mm. And I always love at the end of the movie, the couple is separated and they're at their son's middle school graduation yeah and she says to her to her the 
they're separated, but the, the, the part, the wife says to the husband, even though they're separated, she acknowledges their first date. And she says, I'm so glad we went for that ice cream. And I've asked so many people if their belief is that they get together and they stay together after that, or if they stay separated. Mm. And I believe they stay separated and that they can still have gratitude for each other and the love and the family that they built, even if they're not partners. Mm. So yeah. Crazy Stupid Love is my favorite. Yeah, I love that. That reminds me of a series uh, called Modern Love. I don't know if you've watched that one. Yes, I yeah. love that. Yeah, love it's so good. It's kind of yeah, similar to that. It's really realistic and um, yeah, it quite is. warm to watch as well because yeah, it's it's real life. I love the different it aspects is. of how things yeah. can turn out. Cool. Absolutely. So you're on this podcast as a guest, but I wonder which podcast would you recommend? Which one do you, do you listen to in your free time? I love Brene Brown. Me too. That's probably the, my favorite one that I listen to. Um, I listen to Glennon Doyle's podcast mm. and I listen to Esther Perel's podcast. And every now and then I will listen to um, a Jay Shetty podcast, kind of like the, you know, the top names that are out there. Yeah. To be honest, I love podcasts where I learn something, mm. but I learn it in a relatable way. Like that's why I love Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle's because it feels, well, Brene Brown's is very different because hers is all, you know, very research-based and bringing in experts in the field, whereas Glennon Doyle feels very relatable as just a human. Mm. So I, I love to feel seen in what I hear a speaker talk about, yeah. but I love when I can have an expert have some grounding or scientific backing or research to really highlight a point or a tool. Cause I love to always be learning. Yeah. So I always want to be able to get something out of it that I can apply that I know is not just some pop psychology, but really kind of rooted and grounded. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not, and it still applies to me, that's great too. But I love hearing from experts in different fields because it allows me to not have to take the time to read all the books that I have no time to read. <laughs> yeah, I really love that. And it, it kind of is similar to what we're trying to achieve here as well on this show. You know, we we actually want to combine both of that. You know, we want to have scientific I love that. insights, uh, research based, but we also want to make it more relatable because we have um, humans, uh, you know, talking here, right? So we want to make sure right. it's relatable for our audience. And for me, I'm not a researcher, so it's actually really good for me to translate what I'm learning as an actual learner, uh, a human that's going through the you know process of, you know, packaging all the information into my daily life. So that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not a researcher either, but I do fall back on a lot of the neuroscience and yeah. the research base in the tools that I teach because I'm equal part woo-woo like I love the spiritual woo-woo stuff that has not a lot of scientific basing even though I think there is a lot of basing and a lot of the, the woo-woo stuff out there but I also love to give the very grounded tools yeah so I, I like to bridge both and mm. then also then you add in a personal story which that makes it relatable yeah absolutely. so that's also what I do on my podcast so I, I appreciate that that's the style that you're aiming for yeah absolutely and of course you know we, we want to ground a, a lot of the insights that we talk about in in some research or some scientific facts uh, but it's always good yeah. to add you know stories that are more relatable on top of it and that's how we can learn together and I think that's the nice thing about podcasts and you know what as a therapist I actually tell a lot of my own stories yeah 
I break that third wall because that's how we relate and understand what it looks like in practice. Mm, I love that. Thank you. And the next question we have for you is who's your famous role model? Or if not famous, then who's your role model? I don't know that I have a specific answer to that. Mm. I have aspects of what I define as a role model, but I wouldn't say there's one person Mm. that embodies, like, I want to emulate. The things that I find in a role model are are varied you know someone who exhibit exhibits resilience to me is someone i want to look up to someone who exhibits humility and self-awareness and humanity and i think there's many different people that show all of those things but i don't really like have one person who i would say is my role model it's more of like aspects Mm. of what i aspire to be yeah what would be an example of that then? Uh, let's let's pick one aspect and one person that you like. Someone like a, a famous person it doesn't have to be a famous person. Uh, for many years, it was my mom. Yeah, uh, she's overcome a lot. But then, as I got older, it was no longer my mom because mm. uh, I think I surpassed a little bit of her development because she has been stuck in trauma. Mm. Uh, from her childhood. So for many, many years of my life, I was able to focus on her resilience and strength and perseverance. Um, So that would be an example. And to be quite honest, okay, here's one of my role models. My 16-year-old daughter. Hmm, I love that. I've often said, her name is Cammie. I've often said, I want to be Cammie when I grow up. Oh, Cammie, since the moment she was born, she is the most certain of who she is, of anyone I've ever met. She is fearless in a very discerning way. She knows exactly what it is that she wants out of life and is not afraid to speak her truth. Mm. She is an adventurer with unapol- I mean, she's 16 and she's across the world right now. So that yeah. says a lot. She has pushed me out of my comfort zones in the absolute best way possible. So I think when I was younger, it was my mom. And now that I'm an adult, it's my daughter. Oh, that is such a sweet story. And I'm sure, Cami, when, when she hears this podcast or watches this podcast, she'll be yeah. very touched uh, to hear that it comes from her mom. So what a beautiful thing to hear. Thank you for sharing with us. I think it actually is better when we can talk about role models that aren't famous people, but people that are close to us. You know, it's, I love that. Yeah. Um, And finally, for this section, we would love to know what is a course that you have recently completed? Oh, it's been a while since I've completed a course. I buy a lot of courses. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But one that I've recently completed There has, it hasn't been recent. You know, I've done a lot of different trainings in different aspects of therapy, like in Gottman style therapy. And that has been years ago. I am always learning uh, different aspects in mindfulness. And so really delving into staying on top of different aspects and teachers. Yep. So there's not one specific one, because to me, it's, I'm an ongoing learner. Mm. Um, there's a couple of courses that I've purchased recently that I haven't gotten through. One is from Rick Hansen on being well. Mm. Uh, I love Rick Hansen and I love his books. His fav- My favorite book of his is called Buddha's Brain. 
and it combines neuroscience, psychology, and Buddhism. And I just think he's brilliant. And then another course is on relational therapy by uh, someone named Terry Real, who is the recent author or the author of the recent book titled Us, which is brilliant. So those are two that I've purchased but have not completed. Mm, Yeah. But those are some of my, you know, my favorite teachers in the field that I continue to always be growing in. Yeah, that is really close to home, right? Because that's your expertise area and you're continually growing and learning and yeah, that's Always. the spirit that we love. We want to keep learning, yeah. even if we are experts. So thank you for I, sharing. I, I, I think, I think you know, truly, we can't claim to be an expert as long as we're open to continue to learn. There's always more things to learn. We've never fully arrived. Mm. We're never fully done. And if someone thinks they are, I think it's an ego-driven response that they know it all. And yeah. how could we ever know? Yeah, so, so true. Yeah, I'm a constant learner. Yeah. So true. Cannot agree more. And um, again, thank you so much for sharing about these courses. The names sound very new to me, but, um, you know, that's that's why we are here, grabbing a lot of knowledge. And they're great names for, you know, I I think they, you know, Terry Real and uh, Rick Hansen, Esther Perel, for me in the field of relationships and in the overlap of mindfulness and therapy and relationships, these are some of the the best in the field out there. Mm, Thank you. So now let's go to uh, the, you know, the very interesting part of this conversation, uh, the part I look forward to ever since we started talking about mindfulness. Uh, We are here to talk about mindfulness, the science behind it, um, but the show is about well-being. So we always like to go broad first um, and, you know, well-being means very different things to different people. So we are wondering for you, Jory, what does well-being mean? For me, well-being is feeling in balance and harmony with how we navigate life's challenges. For me, well-being is letting it be okay to be uncomfortable Mm. versus letting the discomfort define you or take over. Well-being for me is knowing that I have a set of tools to draw upon when I need it. Well, me, well-being to me is not defined as happiness because happiness is fleeting Mm. and happiness is defined by many different kinds of experiences, not just one. And happiness is only one of the, you know, few core emotional experiences. And so to me, it's so much more Mm -hmm. than just being happy. Yeah. It's finding balance in, you know, one of my favorite quotes is by the ancient poet Rumi. And it says, you know, life is a balance of holding on and letting go. Mm, Yeah. And to be able to to hold space for that harmony and disharmony and to know that that's balance, that to me is well-being. It, it's not tipped in that things are always going to be good. It's things can be hard and I know it's impermanent mm-hmm. and I know it's not personal and I know I've got tools to draw upon and I know I'm already getting through it. One of my favorite things to say is you have a 100% success rate in getting through everything you never thought you could. That's well-being, mm. is knowing you're already getting through all the hard stuff. It's not just about, I'll be happy when. Yeah. It sounds like it's a lot it's, about balance because like you said, it's not about mm, knowing all the different aspects, but rather having the tools whenever you need them because you don't know when it's gonna fluctuate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's life, right? I mean, 
And to me, that at the root of well-being is being able to hold space for the and. Mm. You know, it's like my daughters who just, I launched them. Like, I'm grieving over them not being home. Mm. And I'm thrilled for their opportunities. Mm. And my house feels really empty. And I'm really excited about what do I get to explore for me at this point in my life. Like, that's well-being is the balance of holding space for all of it. I've got a client who calls it the soup of and. Mm. That's very interesting. And when we can hold space for the and, then we don't get too tipped in one direction because otherwise we overattach to when it feels really good and then we freak out when it feels uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. That's a very good take on well-being. Um, the, do, you, the, do you know what do you know what, equanimi- what equanimity means? Not really. Could you enlighten Equanimity? Me? Yeah, equanimity is radical acceptance. Oh. Equanimity is a a big key foundation in mindfulness practice. Equanimity is the ability to have a situation and not instantly need to label it as good or bad, positive or negative. It's the the deep wisdom to say it is what it is, Hmm. not from a place of denial and dismissal Hmm. and not from a place of overattaching to the pleasurable things, but to really have this evenness of mind. Mm. Now, some people think when we have equanimity that we're just like being zombies moving through the world, like not feeling anything and like being detached. Yeah. Equanimity is in fact the exact opposite mm. of detachment. It's actually feeling it so authentically, but not letting it define you and take over. It's holding space for it. Yeah. That's well-being to me. Yeah. That is uh, a lot to think about. Um, But I think to dive into that a bit deeper, there would be a lot of misconceptions when it comes to well-being. Because as you said, you know, there are so many different aspects to it. And sometimes we might forget about certain things. Uh, You know, like the the ant soup earlier, that was a very interesting concept. Um, But for a lot of people, it's probably just one aspect, just one thing that, you know, well-being is... Uh, well-being means that I'm, you know, doing well in all aspects. Uh, but, you know, from what you just shared, it doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions you've noticed that people have when it comes to well-being? That if I'm happy, that means I'm, I'm okay. Mm. Or that if I'm happy, things are going well. Mm. I think there's a big misconception that happiness is the only goal. And... You know, so I, I invite people to consider for them, like really what, what does well-being mean to them? Because I think we can get into easily comparison to other people or what we see on media or social media. Oh, well, they're doing this and that seems to be working well. So I should try to do that too. Well, no, not if it's not what works for you. Mm. Right. So I, I think a misconception is that it's a one size fits all. Mm. I think it's a misconception that what used to make me feel like I'm in a good space is always going to be the case, but really we're constantly growing and changing. So to come back to checking in with ourselves to really ask, well, what is it I'm needing right now? Because what works today may not work tomorrow or may not work a week, a month from now. Yeah. So to me, it's about really staying open and curious of checking in with ourselves and being honest when you hear yourself answer, like, what is, what is it that I'm needing Mm to give me that sense of balance or peace or ease because someone can be happy, but not fulfilled in their life. So does that mean that they're in well-being? Yeah. Like that was kind of my marriage. Like I was happy. I 
we ha- I had a, a great life, but I wasn't fulfilled. Hmm. So like, you know, I was needing a deeper, more spiritual level of well-being, not a surface level right. idea of well-being. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a misconception, you know, oh, you live in a beautiful house and you drive this car and you've got this beautiful family and you're successful. So therefore you should be happy and doing well. Well, no, emotions don't work that way. Yeah. And emotions aren't logical, so we can have the things. Mm. But to me, it's like, well, what am I feeling on the inside? So again, the misconception being that the external factors define the internal experience. Mm. Yeah, I I think what you just said kind of reminds me of the Maslow hierarchy of need. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I might be doing well, you know, like the bottom tier, you know, physically, everything's great. Um, And that might mean that my well-being level is really good but then actually you know when you take another step further um, and you look at the whole picture it might not be the case and there might be things that uh, needs to be looked at because otherwise like you said you you could be happy but not fulfilled Um, and there's a really big difference there that sometimes I think there's a huge difference Mm. and people don't often take the time to understand the difference Mm. yeah and but part of it is is getting to know yourself Mm, Part of it is having that curiosity, you know, I'm 44, what made me, you know, feel happier, fulfilled at 22 or 33 is going to be different at 44 and will likely be different at 55. So that's part of the constant learning and growth to stay curious of what, what is it that I need right now? Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That's uh, definitely a big reminder for me too, because now I need to think about my um, happiness versus my fulfillment. Uh, there's going to be some deep thinking after this. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I think happiness can come with, you know, oh my God, that was a great meal. I'm so yeah. happy. Yeah. True. Right. Or, oh my God, I just bought the most amazing new pair of jeans. I'm so happy. Yeah. But fulfillment to me is that soul level. Like, Absolutely. what do I need to feel authentic? What mm. do I need to feel that I'm in alignment mind, body, spirit, right? What What do I need to feel connected in my intimate relationships? Yeah. Intimate, just meaning, you know, your close relationships in which you Mm. feel fully present or seen, right? That to me is fulfillment. Mm. Yeah, that's my definition of it. Yeah, no, actually, I relate to that a lot. Um, And and I think it takes mindfulness, right? Now we're going to the topic. It takes mindfulness to realize all of that. Because if you are going through your day without mindfulness, I personally think that you would probably not notice any of this. So, Jory, what is the definition of mindfulness in your opinion? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Lou, because I was going to say my one word definition is awareness. Mm. Yes. It's awareness. And I'm going to say a lot more, obviously, but people often have the misconception that we need to be aware like all the time. That's not possible. Yeah. So while I believe that ultimately to be mindful means to be aware, mm. I actually think it's almost more important to recognize the moments you're no longer aware, right? Because we live our life on autopilot and we go through the motions of our day and we don't even realize that we're on autopilot because it's so well ingrained. But the moment you kind of wake up from that autopilotness, right? That to me is the mindful moment when you have the awareness that you're no longer being aware. I give a really simple example. I don't know about you, but the end of my day, when I get in bed, I like to scroll on my phone, play a game, 
scroll Facebook, to me, it's permission to just tune out, to be mindless, right? Yeah. It feels calming and relaxing and mindless for, I don't know, maybe about five minutes. At some point, it switches from this is relaxing and calming to now I'm doing it without awareness. And now I'm just kind of addicted and I'm not even aware that I can, I'm continuing to scroll and I haven't considered, is this still what I want to be doing or is it just my habit? So to me, the mindful moment would be to recognize when it went from relaxing and calming and with intention to now I'm just doing it out of habit and I'm no longer aware if it's actually what I want to be doing right now. Mm. Wow. So to mm. get back to your question, yeah, the, the traditional an- definition of mindfulness as given by John Kabat-Zinn, who is like the grandfather of mindfulness in the Western world. I did my training with him 10 years ago in mindfulness-based stress reduction. He defines mindfulness as paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So that's kind of four components, right? Yeah. Paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. I like three out of four of those components. Can you guess the one? I'm just curious. Is mm. there one of those for you? Yeah. That doesn't like that maybe doesn't like align. This is like, you know, trick question because there's <laughs> my answer. But yeah. is there one of those that make it feel a little bit harder to attain? Without judgment, the last one? Yes. Perfect. Okay, exactly. Yeah. Thank you for answering what I had in mind. <laughs> Because here's the thing, we are inherently judgmental beings. Mm. And in fact, our judgments are really quite important because they inform us of our values. They inform us of our boundaries. The things we have judgment on are the things we don't like. Mm -hmm. And that's important information to have. So to have the inherent definition of something be that you have to be non-judgmental when we as humans are inherently judgmental, I think it's a confusing definition because we can then so easily be like, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I, I have judgment, so I guess I'm not mindful. Mm. So not out of disrespect to John Kabat-Zinn, <laughs> but I don't like that definition because I think it sets us up for failure without giving the pure definition of, well, what is our intention? Like, mm. what were we actually trying to do? So I define mindfulness in three words. Mm. Awareness is the one I mentioned, and I'll talk more about that in a second. Attention and intention. Mm. Okay. So what do we want to be aware of? Well, we want to be aware of what's arising in this present moment. What is arising in the present moment? We've got thoughts. We've got emotions. We've got sensations in our body. And then we've got external things. We've got distractions. We've got people. We've got devices. We've got the world. We've got the news. We've got social. Like We've got all the things, right? Yeah. So we have an internal awareness and an external awareness. So let's be aware of what's arising in this present moment. Attention. What do we want to pay attention to? In my mind, we want to pay attention to what are our typical habits and patterns and mindsets and reactions to anything that's arising. What do I do when I have a thought that's disturbing? What do I do with an uncomfortable emotion? What do I do with this sensation in my body? What do I do when my phone is beeping? What do I do when the news is disturbing? What do I do in a conflict of conversation? So noticing, like paying attention to what do I normally do? Yeah. And the last part, intention, is knowing why you're doing and doing it on purpose. Being conscious in how you respond versus react. Yep. 
And one of the ways that we can really get grounded and rooted in our intentions is through knowing what our values are and being values driven. And that helps inform us of why am I doing what I'm doing? Hmm. Yeah. So that's my definition. Awareness, attention, intention. Yeah. I think you had a really good point earlier. And when you asked me, I was immediately going to that space of, you know, having no judgment because I'm like, that's tough because yes. we're always judging, you know, not not in the in the bad way of, you know, constantly judging things, but it's just we're, we're sense making beings. So we're judging situations, or, you know, things that are happening in front of us. So I, I think, yeah, like when you said awareness, attention, intention, I immediately took notes because I was like, OK, that's interesting. I need to definitely remember this. And, and, and of course, there's foundational components that when practicing awareness, attention, intention, we want to be able to adopt. Mm. You know, and, and and I hope we can have time to go into, but I'd like to explain some of the brain science as, as rooted in this and, yeah. and how meditation fits into this. Absolutely. But you know, gratitude is a is a component, as a foundation of mindfulness, and I'll explain why in a minute. But compassion, self-compassion, to me, compassion is the opposite of judgment. Mm. Right. If I'm driving and I get cut off by a guy on the road, a judgment would be like, oh, my God, he's such a jerk. Why did he do that? Compassion would be like, oh, well, maybe he's in a rush somewhere or self-compassion to be like, oh, that really made me feel kind of icky. But I'm sure it wasn't personal. Yeah. So, you know, gratitude, compassion, self-compassion, being in loving kindness, like having well wishes for yourself and others. And if you see someone suffering or struggling, just sending them some love, you know, just sending good, good vibes. And, you know, being able to be present versus getting stuck in rumination or stuck in future tripping. Like these are all, you know, there's layers to how do we step into greater awareness, attention, intention. Like those are the kind of peripheral foundations to adopt. Mm as a practice, as we build the muscle towards making this more second nature. Mm, yeah, there are a lot of components to mindfulness, uh, so it seems. And uh, because we're, we're now talking about well-being, I want to lead us to a space where we make some connections there, because actually on on this show, we talk a lot about gratitude. You know, we talk about compassion, self-compassion, too. Um, so this plays in perfectly with that. and. Um, in your definition, I already saw a lot of components where we're actually um, not doing one thing in mindfulness. We're actually doing multiple things, you know, including having that gratitude, compassion, self-compassion. So when we look at the whole picture, how do you think mindfulness would impact our well-being? Very simple. Hmm. It gives us the ability to respond and not react. Mm-hmm. Yep. When we react, it's knee-jerk. It's automatic pilot, it's habit, it's patterns that are not generally so skillful, and it's generally unintentional, which means we're going to do things we're not really aligned in doing. We're going to say things we don't really align in meaning. Mm. We're not going to be a present player in our own lives. When we can respond, we are giving ourselves some space. And in that space, we're able to calm our brain, calm our body and actually check in how, you know, it's intentional. How do I want to respond to what's arising? Right. <clears throat> can yeah. I, can I give some of the brain science of how I always talk about this? Because I think this would yeah, make it really clear. Absolutely. We love some brain so, science. Perfect. Let, let's go, do, let's do some brain science because I also want to share how meditation fits into this because yeah. People often interchangeably use the words mindfulness and meditation. Mm. 
Right. And they're two different things. Mm -hmm. They're related, but they're different practices. Yeah. But before we get to how they're different, because this all is how it impacts our well-being, I want to give you my little brain science 101 and the four components that I think is really, really important for people to understand because knowledge is power. Yeah. And when we can understand how our brains are designed and how our brains work, we can understand that actually nothing is wrong with us and we're actually just human after all and have more self-compassion for ourselves in the process. Yeah. So the first thing I like to explain about the brain is the reciprocal relationship between your emotional brain and your prefrontal cortex. So your emotional brain is in the center of your brain and your prefrontal cortex is your most evolved part of your brain evolved by your mid twenties, which is why teenagers make stupid mistakes because their brain's not fully formed. So the reciprocal relationship is when our emotional brain fires off, when our emotional brain gets activated, we have an alarm called our amygdala, the emotional brain fires off and it literally shuts down access to our prefrontal cortex. That is where prefrontal cortex is where you've got logic, reason, rationality, decision-making, clear thinking, language, communication, and memory, Hmm. okay? So when our emotional brain fires off, it shuts down the access to our tools. So normally when our emotional brain is not triggered, it's like a four-lane open freeway highway with no traffic. The communication between the two parts of the brain is easy, free-flowing. When that emotional brain fires off, that connection to the prefrontal cortex becomes like a one-lane country road with traffic. It's almost like you the Wi-Fi went out. You just can't access your tools. So what does that look like in practice? Well, you get angry, you say something you don't mean. Mm. When you get stressed, you can't think straight. When you're anxious, you can't focus. When you're nervous, you forget stuff. Reciprocal relationship of our emotional brain and our executive functioning, right? So that can help you understand when you're triggered. You're like, oh, let me like take a minute because I'm not operating from my right brain right now because I'm likely going to be unintentional when I'm coming from my emotional brain. Good information to have. And I'll talk about how to quiet down the emotional brain in a second. The second thing I like to share is that we have a negativity bias, which means our brains have been designed to focus on the negative. Back when we were cavemen, it was for survival, right? So we we see a bear in the cave and our brain releases chemicals and hormones to run and fight the bear. That's our fight, flight, freeze response. And we tend to overfocus on the negative because it keeps us more in survival because if we let our guard down and we're over here in the fish, we're fishing and getting, you know, all the food and we can feed our family back at the cave because there's 10 fish over here in the sea. We are designed to focus on the negative. Rick Hansen, who I mentioned earlier, he says that we are Velcro to the negative and we are Teflon to the positive. So we attach to the negative and we let the good slide right off of us. So knowing that, we are automatically finding fighting an uphill battle to focus on gratitude, hmm. okay? So another component of the brain is this idea that neurons that fire together wire together, which means the more you focus on something, the more you dwell on it, the more you give it a thought attention, 
neurons are going to fire off, connecting with nearby neurons, strengthening that thought into your neural code, and it becomes part of your implicit way of being. So when you're overly focused on your negativity bias, you see the world through a lens of negativity. Well, when we have the awareness, because it always comes back to awareness, to say, oh, look at that. That's interesting. Notice I said that with compassion, not judgment, right? Oh, that's interesting. Let me shift my mind's attention. And that's where gratitude, compassion, self-compassion come in. Let me shift my mind's attention and dwell and focus on the positive, the gratitude, the self-compassion, the compassion for others, the loving kindness. When I focus on the gratitude and I dwell on that, those neurons are going to fire and wire together, connecting, helping that become of our implicit way of being, which helps explain why we have what neuroscience has shown us as neuroplasticity, Mm. meaning that we can actually rewire our brains to new habits and new patterns through practice. It's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity. So the example I like to give for that is imagine you're standing at a, at a field and it's a snowy field, okay? And you want to cross the field, but the only way to get across this very snowy field is there's a very well-established path. Yep. And this path is so well-established, the snow bankments on each side are like 10 feet high. Mm. But there's just one problem. You don't like how you feel when you cross that path and you don't like where it takes you. But every time you get to the snowy field, this is the only established pathway. So you walk it and you're like, why does this always happen? I hate this. (laughs) And you think this is just life. This sucks. This is just how it is. Yeah. But with awareness, you can get to that snowy field and you can say, oh, I see this path, although I don't like it. So I'm going to choose consciously to start a new path. And I'm going to start walking in the snow. And at first, it's going to be difficult and hard and wet and cold and slushy. But every time I approach this snowy field, if I consciously make that choice each and every time, which I'm in alignment with my intentions, eventually that becomes a well-established pathway. And the old path gets snowed over. And now whenever I get there, I can walk the path in which I feel good about myself and aligned and end up where I want to be. Like that literally describes neuroplasticity. That literally describes rewiring our brain to develop new habits and patterns. So every time you get some stimulus, you can respond with intention. And that intention becomes more easy access, more second nature, the more you practice it. Mm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a... A lot of information in a few minutes, (laughs) but I think I really like the example you gave because it makes so much sense, especially the path, you know, um, sometimes uh, I think for us, we we probably don't think of it as the analogy of the path in the snow, like you mentioned, maybe it's something else. Uh, Maybe it could be, you know, swimming and against the current, maybe, you know, because mindfulness can feel like that sometimes. And um, I think knowing that we can actually rewire our brain um, really helps because I hear this from a lot of friends and people that I talk to where they kind of say, oh, that's how I am. You know, like, this is how I am. That's it, period. There's no, 
there's no room for change. While in fact, as we know, as you mentioned, right, neuroplasticity means you can actually rewire your brain, you can change, you can improve. Um, and so this here's is, the thing, though. Yeah. People say I, this is how I am because they don't want to do the work to change. Yeah. They want the outcome, yeah. but they don't want to have to do the work. They want to do the spiritual bypassing if they want to get to the rainbow without going through the storm. Mm. Yeah. Right. So the path. they, they, right. Like they believe I can't do that because it's hard. Yeah. Or it's going to take time mm-hmm. or it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But you know, the reality is we can teach an old dog new tricks. That's what neuroplasticity tells us. You know, it used to be believed that you are who you are. No, if you want to change, absolutely take work. <laughs> you can do that. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, it's not going to happen overnight, mm-hmm. but you know, I like to give a lot of visuals in my examples and this is where meditation comes into the component of it. If I want to be stronger, I couldn't just sit here and think about having strong biceps or a strong core. I would have to physically go to the gym or exercise and do muscle building activities to develop the strength. So I can live my life in a more healthy and strong way. Yeah. Right. For Mm -hmm. longevity or whatever I want to be strong for. Yeah. So meditation is the foundation to this practice. So I like to consider meditation to be like going to the gym. And I'll explain meditation in a minute, too, because people get that confused. Meditation is like going to the gym every time you meditate, you are literally doing like bicep curls for your brain because your brain is simply another muscle you can build. So every time you meditate, you're doing little bicep curls for your brain. So I consider that to be a formal practice. Meditation is something you can add to your to-do list. You can check it off, cross it off. You do it, you're done. Mindfulness is not something you add to your to-do list. Mindfulness is a quality of presence. Yeah. It's a way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. It's how you show up in your ability to respond and not react. Be intentional. Be aware. Be mindful, right? Your, your quality of presence. Mm. So you go to the meditation to build the muscle of your brain. So that way you have the strong tools to implement in your everyday life. So meditation is a formal practice. Mindfulness is an informal practice. Meditation is something you do. I always say mindfulness is not something you add to your to-do list. Mindfulness is something you add to your to-be list. Who do you want to be in the world? Mm. That's a big difference. people always, huge. People always say to me, well, Joy, I don't have time to be mindful. Well, what does that mean? You've got time to be angry and stressed, but did you sign up for that? Yeah. You're awfully giving your anger and stress a lot of time and space and attention in your day, but that's also a choice because it's about how you respond and versus react to whatever is arising. Mm. Yeah. So true. Wow. So the way I define meditation is meditation is simply allowing space for stillness and silence to be aware of whatever's arising in the present moment. Mm Mm-hmm. And bringing your awareness back to some focal point of attention. So there's actually two components. The first component of meditation is called open awareness. Yeah. This is like in the field of meditation. This is what it's called, open awareness, which is the, I'm going to allow whatever is to come up to come up. I'm not going to, you know, shut it down. I'm not going to overattach to my thoughts. It's just, you know, stream of consciousness, right? Yeah. 
focus attention is the second component. So I'm going to have some focal point of my attention. Most often it's your breath. And I'll explain why in a moment. Most often it's your breath. But we can also meditate on something we're looking at, something we're touching. You can meditate on touching your fingers or your your feet on the ground or a walking meditation or a sound meditation or an eating meditation, right? It can be anything that's a focal point for our attention. So when our mind wanders off, just going to do. Oftentimes you hear the phrase that we have a monkey mind. I hate that phrase because to me, a monkey doesn't feel easy to train. To me, a, a, you know, a hyper monkey feels like helpless and hopeless of, oh, well, the monkey's just going to swing from tree to tree. What it's going to do, what it's going to do. In reality, I describe our mind to be more like a hyper puppy. Because hmm. you can train a puppy or you can put a puppy on a leash, right? So as the puppy wanders off, that's your awareness. Oh, look, there it goes. And your awareness and your breath is what brings it back. So you have some focal point of attention to bring your mind's attention back to. Because mindfulness is simply an attention of mind practice. It's noticing where your mind is resting and asking, is that serving me? And if it's not, well, then shift it to where it is. Yeah. It's not dismissal. It's consciousness. It's awareness. It's intentional. Mm. Dwelling on my anger is not serving me. Okay, can I dwell on compassion instead? Mm. Yeah. So I think that is a very detailed recap into the relationship between mindfulness and well-being and, and you know there's so much benefit you know there are so many things that we can start to list um, and one of the practice like you just said is meditation and we've sort of debunked you know the uh, misconception that mindfulness equals meditation now um, yeah yeah now we we'll, let's take a look at this uh, at mindfulness as can you know, I add in- one more can I add one more quick thing to just add to the yeah. finalize that little recap of everything Sure. So one of the things, you know, usually with meditation, the focal point is the breath. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge component of being mindful. And here's why. So remember I said the emotional brain fires off? Yeah. I just wanted to recap with that because this is part of our well-being is knowing how to calm down that emotional brain mm-hmm. so you can get back access to your tools, so your yeah. executive functioning. Breathing actually calms down that amygdala. Mm-hmm. And when we get more skilled at meditation, our breath becomes more accessible. So I used to teach mindfulness and meditation to kids in schools. And I couldn't call it meditation because in a school setting, it was controversial. So I would just simply call it mindful breathing. Yeah. But I used to ask all the grades, if you've been breathing from the moment you're born to the moment you die, why should we practice breathing? Because you're already doing it. Yeah. This one little girl, she was nine years old. She said, I imagine we practice our breathing. So in case of an emergency, she said, I imagine we practice our breathing for the same reason we have a fire drill. She said, Mm -hmm. we have a fire drill so we know what to do in case of an emergency. And I imagine that we practice our breathing so we know how to use it when we need it. Wow. She's brilliant. She was nine. I know. And she was completely brilliant. And so we meditate to build the muscle, yeah. to make our breath more accessible. So in the moment, off the cushion, in real life, we can recognize we're triggered, take a deep breath, calm down the brain, get us back access to our tools so we can respond intentionally yeah. versus react impulsively. Yeah, totally. Meditation gives us that foundation. It's really hard to access your breath when you haven't built the muscle to access it. 
And then just one last quick thing. Another way to calm down that emotional brain is to simply name what you're experiencing. Wow, I'm really overwhelmed. Science shows that when you name it, it calms down the emotional alarm. It gives it gives you some of that space, that pause. And in that space, you can choose how you want to respond. Mm, yeah. I'm taking it okay, all in. Okay, now we can move on. That yeah. was the final piece. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really love it. I'm, now I'm taking it all in, you know. Let's remember to breathe and, and you know, maybe learn to breathe um, mindfully sometimes, yeah. especially when it's stressful. Right. And you can do it for 30 seconds a day. It doesn't have to be a long meditation for it to be effective. You just got to yeah. be consistent with building a practice. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many easy ways to do it. And we can get into this uh, in the practice section just after this. Uh, so we can go into that in more details to get practical. Um, but going back to the, the theoretical side of thing, uh, let's recap. So we've talked about the benefit of uh, mindfulness in the context of well-being. Uh, but I want to hone in on mindfulness because I know that it's not just our well-being that um, it has a good impact on. It's so much more, especially, for example, in relationship, right? Because you're um, your therapist in, in relationships yourself, and I'm sure you would agree with this. Um, so if we look at the broader context of mindfulness, what would be the key benefits of mindfulness aside the fact that it helps with our well-being in general? The very first thing I come to is compassion versus judgment. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that. Right. So yep. in in relationships, if I can hold space for what the other person is experiencing and have compassion for their pain, their anger, their sadness, their emotions, their triggers, and not over-personalize it, because we tend to over-personalize everything. Yeah. Right. And so if I can hold space in that compassion, yeah, I think then we are more able to respond intentionally to one another. Yeah. And to be acting out of a, a place of loving kindness, like, you know, kind of playing fair, right? Mm. Like I am angry and I hold space for what you're experiencing. So how can I hold the space for both of our needs in this moment without being codependent, without shutting it down? It, it's consciousness. It, it, it's yeah. living on purpose. And so knowing why you're doing what you're doing holding space for the and I'm angry and I still love you. I'm hurt and I'm confused, right? All of these things at the same time. It helps us in more effective communication. Mm -hmm. It helps us in gaining insight into other people because we're not so focused on a negativity bias of how they've hurt us and what they've done. And, you know, we're not externalizing blame, but we're also able to self-reflect in a more, having more humility and Mm -hmm. owning, wow. Like, because mindfulness allows us to get out of our head and like tune into our bodies. Like when we stop all the spiraling because we're on autopilot and we can like actually connect and align, we can tune in like, wow, okay, what am I actually feeling right now? And then respond in a way that is reflective of where we're actually at in that present moment. Yeah. versus kitchen sink and argument and bring up something from three months ago and three years ago that has nothing to do with right now, but we feel justified because I'm triggered. So therefore you must be hurt too, right? Yeah. Like, and I do a lot of work in mindful parenting mm. and, you know, mindful parenting to me is respecting the sovereign nature of your child. You don't own them. You're simply here to guide them. And so So often we get stuck on expectations, hopes, and dreams for how we want someone else to be 
that we fail to see who they actually are. Yeah. Wow. And so when we can parent or love from the place of, I'm parenting from the place of actually knowing who my child actually is versus the child I wanted to have, wished I had, hoped I had, or same thing with a partner. It's coming from a place of, I respect that you are a sovereign being and I don't know better than you. I've just been on this earth longer. Yeah. I don't know better than you. I'm just coming from my own experience. So Mm. how can I consciously hold that space? Mm. And in fact, as a, when my kids were younger, they're now 16 and 18 and we have an amazing relationship. They're like my best friends, yet I still hold the respect and boundary of being a mother. But I took out of my vocabulary a long time ago the phrase, you know what you should do is, because <laughs> that takes away their sovereign ability yeah. to figure out what they should do. I don't know what they should do. I can give them input. Yeah. I could give them advice. And I can respect that they are a sovereign being who... I can teach the skills on how to make a good choice, Mm. but I don't know what somebody else should do. That's not my, I'm not in their world Mm. internally. Yeah. I really love that because uh, it sounds to me, and this is my way of recapping so I can learn, is mindfulness does not only improve your overall well-being, it also helps you to be a better human, a better partner, a better friend, a better colleague, a better parent. Um, and it helps you to actually rewire and change a lot of the old patterns that you wish to, you know, detach yourself from. For example, you're saying yes. you you have to, you know, um, lose some words, uh, you know, some certain terms while you're communicating with your your children. And for a lot of people, it might mean, um, you know, for example, my friend, I'm sure she would be watching this episode and know, okay, now I need to practice mindfulness. So I, I'll lose some of the terms that I use when I talk to myself. I'm being mean to myself. Some people might go, yeah. I'm going to you know, mindfully um, not use certain terms when I communicate with my colleagues, you know, and, you know, like other parents like you might say, right, now I realize I could actually avoid using certain terms when I talk to my kids mindfully. So there are heaps of benefits there. There's huge. One of my favorite parenting tips that I give is to be, and I I don't know what it's like where you are, but I'm sure there's an emergency phone number you call in case of an emergency. In the United States, it's okay. In the United States, it's 911. Yeah. Okay. So in an emergency, we call 911 and some operator picks up the phone on the other side. And, you know, God forbid there's some big emergency, you're screaming into the phone, oh my God, the house is on fire, whatever is going on. Yeah. And that 911 operator is designed to stay calm. Mm. And in their calm, you don't even have to see them, but they've been trained to stay calm. And by them being calm, inherently calms you down. Okay. When kids have a temper tantrum, what do parents normally do? They scream at their kid to calm down. Well, guess what? That is the exact opposite of the intention that's going to get the kid to calm down because you're role modeling the very opposite of the behavior you're seeking for them to in- engage in. Yeah. So I always tell parents, be the 911 operator. Hmm. The last thing your kids are ever going to do when you say calm down is actually calm down, yeah. especially if you're angry when you say it. Yeah. But if you can know that you can be mindful, do your meditation, do your own inner work to recognize where are my triggers 
So that way, when my kid is having a temper tantrum, that's a cue for me to say, okay, this is really hard. This is never the right timing. I'm embarrassed I'm in public. I need to take a deep breath. And in fact, there was one particular day when my kids were little, they must've been like seven and nine. And I was trying to get them into the bath at the end of the day. I was still married. My ex-husband used to work late hours. So, you know, dinner, bath and bedtime was often on my own and it was exhausting and I was tired and I was losing patience and like mama wanted a clock out at eight o'clock and they were still, you know, hyper. And I remember I started to raise my voice Hmm. to get them into the bath. Yeah. And I literally caught myself and I said, you know what, you guys, I'm going to take just a minute because I'm about to say something that isn't going to help me or you. So I'm going to take a minute and I'm just going to breathe. And I literally, right in front of them, I just, okay, what do we need to do to get into the bath? Hmm. I shifted, not what I needed from them. I shifted how I showed up. Yeah. That's being mindful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's powerful. It is. It is truly powerful. And I think, speaking of which, uh, let's actually go into the practice, you know, where we get, get really practical because you're actually getting there already and you're kind of ahead of us. But I want to recap good. there for, <laughs> you know, no, good it's, it's sorry, really good. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. So now let's recap, actually, because we've, we've thrown theory into the mix. We've thrown a practice into the mix. Now, um, let's recap. Well, from what I've heard, you know, in, in this scenario of mindfulness, the best practice, and I know that you're practicing this yourself because you just mentioned it, is mindful breathing. And this applies in situations that arise out of nowhere, like what you just mentioned. It Every could single be, situation. Yeah, it could be something you just actually pencil in the, your diary and to, you know, to do every day. So to recap, what are the three good things about mindful breathing for those who haven't tried it before? Well, if you learned nothing else from this entire show, take home the phrase, take a minute and just breathe. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's not going to change the situation, but it's going to change how you're able to respond to it. Yeah. So the best thing about mindful breathing is it's going to quiet down the emotional alarm It's going to give you access to your tools and it's going to help you respond consciously and with intention in a way that's in alignment for how you want to show up. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. It's just not always that easy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we talked about, you know, like situations where you've used this yourself as a practice. um, But I, I bet you for sure when people start using this practice for the first time, there will be a lot of challenges. So do you, can you recall some of the early on challenges that you had yourself when you first started adopting mindful breathing and how did you overcome them? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think for me, it was starting with a meditation practice. I felt like I wasn't good at it. And there's a lot of myths around meditation that make us think we're not good at it. Number one being, I, you know, I have all these thoughts and there's a belief that you're supposed to have a clear mind when you meditate or you're supposed to feel peaceful or Zen-like or calm afterwards. Yeah. That doesn't always happen. Not Mm -hmm. most of the time. Yeah. So, but my, my hardship was, I felt like I had no time. Yeah. So I had to really question that. Well, am I, do I not have time or am I not making the time? So for me, 
I created the space in the time that I had available to me to meet myself where I was at, to set myself up for success. Yeah. Because if I told myself, oh, I'm going to get up early, like, yeah, that was BS. That wasn't going to happen. Not when I had young kids either. Yeah. So for me, I overcame that by meeting myself where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And I started to meditate while I was in the car. Mm. Now that goes against a typical vision of what meditation is. Because obviously I was driving and my eyes were open. I wasn't sitting in some lotus position with my eyes closed. But what did that look like for me? It meant turn off the music, put down the phone and actually be present. Mm. And while I was driving, breathe, consciously breath in, consciously breath out. Mm. And it was amazing. When I did that, I got to wherever I was feeling more present and more calm. But I liked how I was able to harness my breath throughout the day. Yeah. And so I started really small, meeting myself where I'm at. Yeah. If we don't set ourselves up for success, we're never going to build a new habit. Mm. So don't tell yourself, okay, I'm going to go start meditating for 10 minutes a day. No, say, you know, when I'm brushing my teeth, can I just focus my attention on brushing my teeth? Mm -hmm. And as soon as I notice my mind wandered off, just bring it right back and try again. Yeah. Right. Or when you're standing in line at the grocery store to not pick up your phone and check your Facebook or your email and just stand there and just take in your what you see in your surroundings. Or when you're out on a walk, actually tune into the sensation of your feet touching the ground and the movement of your legs. That's a walking meditation. Mm-hmm. When you're eating, instead of just scarfing down food, tune into your senses. What does it look like? Smell like taste? Like have that first bite with mindful awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of like actually tuning into the flavor. I had a mindfulness teacher tell me once he did a mindful eating exercise with ice cream and realized. I don't really like ice cream. It's just cold fat. (laughs) But like we're conditioned to like ice cream until he actually stopped and was like, do I actually like this? What's my intention of why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm, Interesting. And eating is a great way to practice too, because we are always doing it unconsciously. We're eating when we're not hungry. We're not stopping when we're full. We're not even tuning into, do I want this? Do I like this? Is this even fulfilling the craving I'm having? I'm not even really tasting it because I'm so distracted. Yeah. I, I feel like this is for me right now because I'm just like, sometimes I'm so tired. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to have this. And then I just don't really pay attention to what I'm having. Um, so, yeah. yeah, totally hear that. So final question for you in this practice section. We've talked about mindful breathing and you combine it with, you know, meditation, mindful walking, eating, a bunch of other practices. Um, should we combine this practice with anything else? Or in other words, which other practice would you recommend for people to sort of stack habit and combine with mindful breathing and meditation? I would say just start with the mindful breathing, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, because the more we can, here's the thing. We want to get off autopilot. We're living our lives on a fast trajectory. We're on autopilot all the time. The key is to slow down. Yeah to actually know why am I doing what I'm doing, to tuning in and doing a little self-check. How am I right now? And then honestly listening to the answer versus dismissing what might be uncomfortable, Mm. allowing that space. Like that's the habit stacking. You know, to me, the breath is the opportunity for the pause. Mm -hmm. 
If you give yourself opportunity to pause, you're going to respond versus react. Mm -hmm. If you don't slow down, you're going to stay on the autopilot. You're going to react. You're going to be unintentional. You're not going to know why you're doing what you're doing. You're going to be disconnected from yourself and those you care about because you're not really there. Yeah. Thank you. That's definitely something to keep in mind as we go about practicing mindful breathing. Um, And we have some questions from the audience, but I do know that a lot of the things that we discussed already covered uh, some of the questions. So there's a question that I think we might have not addressed yet. So I would love to hear from you. Uh, The the question is interesting to me because I think I struggle with this too. The question goes, I have real difficulty and struggle with emptying my mind to be able to relax and achieve mindfulness. Any advice on where I can start as someone very inexperienced in this? Start with the belief that your mind is never going to empty. Your mind is going to, do you know how many thoughts your mind produces a day? I think I read that statistic somewhere, like thousands of them. Your mind produces between 50 and 70,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. Crazy. And remember what I said about the negativity bias? The majority of those thoughts are going to be negative. Mm. Your mind is never going to stop thinking. However, with practice, you can feel more in control of when the thoughts come in because the normal habit is we have a thought, we believe the thought to be true, we start taking it on, we allow it to take over, and now we're like stuck under the thought. Mm -hmm. We even believe our thoughts more than our own intuition of our body. We think it's logic and reason. It's not, they're just a thought. So how do you empty your mind of the thoughts is to believe that your mind is never going to be empty of thoughts. But if you build the muscle of awareness, you can see the thought and decide. So let me, let me give you a visual. I like visuals of it as you've heard them so far. Imagine you're standing on a train platform. Okay. We, we know the phrase train of thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine you're standing on a train platform and this big, long train of cars, pulls into the station. Now, whenever I talk about this, I visualize our, in the Bay Area, we have our local subway system. Some of our subway stops, it's called BART, are um, above ground, some are underground. The ones that are above ground are generally in the middle of the freeway. Mm -hmm. So I always have this visual, because I think it's a really good one. You're standing on this platform of the BART station that's in the middle of a freeway that has five lanes in each direction. So there's a lot of chaos going around you. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're standing on the train platform. So that's like your peripheral life chaos. And then this big, long train pulls into the station. And as soon as the train pulls into the station, you jump on board because the door is opened. You jump on board and the train takes off and it's like all the way heading to the final destination in San Francisco. Okay. Okay. Without awareness, that's what we do every time a thought comes into our mind. With awareness, being mindful, we stand on the train platform. Our feet are firmly planted on the ground. We are aware of the chaos around us, though it doesn't distract us. We are firmly planted. We see the train pull into the station. We're like, oh, look, there's a train. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Do I want to get on this train or not? Mm. Oh, wait, is it where I want to be heading or is it taking me down to the dark side? Is it taking (laughs) me to distraction? Is it taking me to shame? Mm. Is it taking me to self-compassion or acceptance or is it taking me to judgment? Like, do I want to step on board of this train? Yeah, what a good question. And if you don't, 
then you say, oh, look, there is a thought. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get on that train. Yeah. And you simply let the thought go. Wow. That is mindful awareness of our thoughts. Yeah. The trains are going to keep pulling into the station. Yeah. But just because they pull into the station does not mean you need to jump on board. Oh, I love this analogy. Thank you. Very helpful. Does that help the answer the question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) But if you think being mindful means I'm standing on the train platform and there's no trains pulling in, you're setting yourself up for failure because the mind's going to keep producing thoughts after thoughts. But over time, they don't have power over you. You have power over them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. It's just building that muscle. Yeah, it is a choice whether you step out onto the train or not. So roger that. Definitely going to remember that. Thank you. Um, I like the visuals. I think it brings these points home. Yeah, me too. I love that. Um, And finally, we have a section. We call it open mic. And we talked about this earlier. And you said you have a very good topic in mind. Um, So the floor is all yours. Uh, What is a message or a topic that you're very, very passionate about that you would like to share with our audience? Okay. So it comes down to it's not about the thing, it's how you relate to the thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So this is a, a visual example, but I will describe it in case someone's not watching, but just listening. Mm-hmm. But I invite anyone who is listening to hit pause and go grab a glass or a cup of something that they can hold. So that way they can experience. So in lieu, okay. if you have something to hold, I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. I got my coffee. Okay. So you have your coffee. Yep. I have a probably 24 ounce metal Starbucks container full of ice water. Okay. Okay. So hold it up so that way you're not resting your arm on anything. So Mm -hmm. you're actually holding it up, like lift your arm, like, so you're not resting on the table. Okay. Okay. If I were to ask you, Mm -hmm. is what you're holding heavy or how much do you think it weighs? Let's start there. How much do you think that weighs? I have the weight on here, 250 mil. (laughs) Okay. And you drink in some of it. So maybe it's a little. Yeah. Probably just. 50 grams by this point. Okay. And if I were to say, Lou, is that heavy? What would you say? No. No. If I said, Lou, you have to hold that cup of coffee for the next minute. Would it feel heavy? It will start to feel heavy very soon. What if I said you need to hold it for the next five minutes? I I think my arm will be sore. Okay. What if I had said this to you at the beginning of our interview and I said, Lou, you need to hold this... (laughs) The entire time that we are talking, would it be heavy? Oh, okay. What if I said, you need to hold this for the next 24 hours? I don't think I could do that. It would be very, very heavy. So it would be very heavy. Now, would the actual weight of whatever it is you're holding change? No. No. So we go through life holding things our pain, our past, our traumas, our frustrations, our anger, our annoyances, we hold them and we think the only option is to keep holding them. And we go through life saying, why me? Why this? This is so hard. This sucks. I hate this. Mm. And we don't realize that we have an option. Okay. So I want you to put your cup down Mm -hmm. and now look at it. It's still there. It hasn't changed, but what has changed is your relationship to it. Mm -hmm. You have now created space between you and whatever it was you were holding. Mm -hmm. And in this space, you're more free to relate to it in a way that is in alignment with you. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Because the moral of the story is the longer you hold on to something, the heavier it is to carry. Yeah. And we forget that we have conscious agency in putting down the cup. Because this is suffering to hold the cup. Mm-hmm. And when we put it down, that is relieving our suffering. That's yeah. mindfulness right there. Yeah. What a Does powerful story. Yeah, totally. And hopefully our audience were practicing as they listening to this too. You know, it would be a powerful message to take home for sure. I'm looking yeah. at my coffee so and I'm like, it's not about the thing. It's how you relate to it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. anything that you're experiencing in your life, imagine if you're suffering around it, ask yourself, how am I holding this? Yeah. And am I holding in a way that's causing me suffering? Cause I can put it down and now I have, I, I have more freedom to create the space and respond intentionally mm. with less suffering. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I really love that. Uh, and in a way to end this topic uh, that we're discussing about mindfulness, I'm sure we can talk about this even more and more, you know, like we can talk about this for days. I always can. <laughs> yeah, like there will, be, there will be no end to it if we just don't decide to, you know, put an end to it because it's such a good topic to talk about. Um, but uh, in the interest of time, I just want to say thank you for joining us. And before you go, where should our listeners find you? And, you know, is there anything that you would like to share with our audience about what you've been doing? Yeah. Yeah. So the best way to find me is my name, Jory Rose, J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E. That's my website. That's my Instagram. I My podcast is Journey Forward with Jory Rose. And always just check up on where I'm at. I uh, always am offering new classes. I am going to be starting uh, a monthly masterclass on Ooh. different aspects and different topics of That's all cool. these things. I... Um, every couple of times throughout the year, open the door to my one-on-one coaching, which is a, a nine-month immersion into your own journey forward. And I would love to just answer questions. I'm really accessible. And I, as you can tell, or hopefully you can tell, I'm really passionate about what I teach and what I do. And I really believe that mindfulness is the answer to everything, whether you're sitting in traffic or dealing with ca- with cancer. It's all about how you respond and not react. And it's all a way for us to reduce our own suffering and live with greater balance. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing, for coming today. I had such a wonderful time talking to you and we'll definitely catch you again very soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by the Wellbeing Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at we.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Lu Ngo. Thanks for tuning in.